0: Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy in international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Techum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the global podcast i'm delighted and really excited to speak with paul o'brien who is the vice president for policy and advocacy at oxfam america where he also oversees the research policy advocacy and campaign work to influence the u.s government and corporations now before oxfam paul worked for years in afghanistan as an advisor to the president and ministry of finance on aid cooperation developing planning and policy reform we are delighted to be talking about the importance of ngos in understanding political will especially when engaging with governments for sustainable development so paul welcome to the global podcast
1: thanks for having me
0: it's a pleasure indeed to have you particularly with the plethora of experience uh, that you bring and your current role with oxfam now before i get into nitty-gritty of the questions and just to provide a bit of context for the audience I wanted to ask, how did you get started in this particular field in working directly with governments that lead you to where you are now? What is the story particularly behind this?
1: Uh, well, a very brief run-through is I actually started out working for local African human rights uh, organizations in Kenya. That was in 93 after uh, graduating from law school. And I, I that was right at, in, in the heart of their uh, first... Um, multi-party elections. And I I, I pretty quickly began to believe that if you wanted to see lasting uh, solutions to poverty reduction, you had to deal with politics on the ground, how governments were being held accountable, and whether they really had the incentives to serve their people rather than steal from them. That Went into uh, over some years. I went back, learned a little bit about being a lawyer. I'm now recovering from being a lawyer. <laughs> I worked for a foundation uh, for a while that was doing that kind of work, but also bringing in social entrepreneurship and the potential role of the private sector. And then finally got into the history you've described, which is working in African contexts and then in Afghanistan to see if how you could engage governments, challenge governments, sometimes support governments to fulfill their proper role as the provider of basic services and the protector of rights. That's sort of my background.
0: It's very And it's quite diverse, particularly. And when regards to engaging with governments, of course, it's you, it seems to be concentrating mainly within Africa and also then taking to Afghanistan and then into the United States. What were the particular challenges you've noticed when dealing with these diverse governments that you noticed, and then what led you to realize well, well, hold up a second here there there could be something in regards to working with them when it comes to development and human rights, or mainly to focus on development sustainability in that in that onset,
1: yeah, well, you know there are all the obvious challenges around working with governments where where they are. Uh, complex systems with lots of internecine squabbling and power games between the actors on the ground, trying to build a constituency, trying to build power, trying to build relevance, often trying to serve their masters. Um, And so trying to engage in in an anti-poverty conversation uh, with a complicated uh, beast like a, a government that is making choices around how democratic it wants to be, how transparent it wants to be, how much power there is to be gained from serving the poor. Those were all uh, interesting challenges um, that that sort of forced me to to do some thinking and learning. But the other, I think, equally interesting uh, challenge that I've come across in my career is that the development community, which, you know, development is really a translation of what in the in the, in the domestic context is normal um, uh, political and economic behavior. You try to be accountable to your citizens and you provide them with services that will make you more politically popular. That's how basic hmm. um, economic prosperity works. The development equation is the word that the international community uses, whether it's donors, whether it's corporations, to inject themselves into that equation. And what I thought was fascinating and challenging is that the development community is actually really confused about how it feels about the political will um, of governments in sustainable development. They don't know what they want a lot of the time. And so a lot of the time as an NGO, you find yourself trying to convince donors or corporations to do the right long term thing even though they may feel actually there's lots of benefits to doing a different thing a short-term outcome or a much more transactional view of what they they want to get done in the country that's the big debate
0: no precisely in fact you really hit the nail or really put the hammer on the nail for that aspect and the fact that the development industry is quite confused on how to engage with governments and and whether or not there's a fit and and i know from even the government aspect they think well development that's that fuzzy wuzzy hullabaloo let's hug the earth and sing imagine uh, type of idea which they find completely that can't be intertwined but as you know and as i know and the work of pax and, and the, what the global podcast tries to advocate is actually they're extremely relevant and they need to be intertwined because they really go hand in hand even though the packages are sold differently now coming into that i'm wondering how how do you How did you work to change that mentality and mindset? Because obviously we know very well many NGOs, uh, many international organizations, they don't tend to put their thinking caps on when it comes to the political will aspect in engaging whether it's advocacy or development programs. How do you uh, approach then the governments when you come up with this development hat and umbrella to say, well, actually this... This could be something towards your benefit or in, at the same token, how do you sway NGOs to say, well, actually, the political tact aspect uh, and employing this for development is something to your benefit?
1: Yeah. So first to say, you know, part of the reason that I came to work at Oxfam was because I didn't have to persuade anybody in the Oxfam system that thinking politically and shaping the the, the way that governments and corporations think is going to be essential to us having an impact. The organization had already gotten there and has has gone a lot further in that journey since I joined uh, 10 years ago. Two reasons for that. I think first, we recognized that our direct service delivery programs, the things that transferred resources from the the richer North often to Mm -hmm. the more impoverished South wasn't working. It wasn't leaving behind that sustainable impact at scale that we talked about. Um, And the second was our commitment to be rights-based and to start from a different question than the classic charity starts from. The classic charity starts from, you know, what can I do? What can I give? What do they need? Um, uh, A a rights-based institution starts from the question, if we believe that all people are equally entitled to basic minimum conditions for living with dignity, basic human rights, then who's actually responsible for delivering on those rights, and what can we do to ensure that they fulfil those responsibilities? And you can't ask that question anywhere in the world without taking a good hard look at a government and potentially the government's allies, partners, often uh, private interests, and saying what ought they be doing more of, less of, to serve people on the ground. So Oxfam got there in those in, for those two reasons. Um, It it is an incredibly challenging exercise because, of course, everybody at some level is playing power games. So developing countries are perfectly happy to have NGOs come in and engage in benign political activities, building capacity, strengthening voice, um, making civil society more robust, and all of these things that we talk about. But if you get to the point of doing that with effective rights-based work, effective influencing work, where you start to threaten the interests of stakeholders who will then lose from what you're trying to get done, in, um, then you start to run into problems. And of course, over the last 10 years, we've gone from a world where momentum was really on our side in terms of this broad theory of change, that governments need to be more accountable, more transparent, uh, and ultimately more responsive to active citizens. That's what was everybody believed was uh, the trajectory Uh, of global politics 10 years ago. Now we're living in a world where, you know, if you're a a budding politician, you're looking at authoritarian populists all around the world getting more and more of a franchise. And so they're asking questions. So why do we need either domestic or internationally supported civil society making our lives difficult, when it seems the way to succeed now is by being a little less respectful of rights and a little bit more uh, in the vein of uh, a Donald Trump or other types of authoritarians.
0: Uh, exactly. And That's what makes it uh, slightly daunting, is the fact that when it comes to the political world and engaging with that, uh, the paradigm shifts not, uh, completely, and there's constant change both in regime and, and, and in the political will, and it keeps one a little bit uh, on their toes. I mean, for those who who seem to love it, such as, such as you and I, it keeps it quite exciting. But for those uh, who are not so enthralled by it? It's it's rather daunting, and and that brings me to uh, the next question, where I know a great many NGOs would look at the the attack of using uh, diplomacy and international development and employing political will in order to exert or try to uh, advocate for your program or a campaign or whatnot as uh, as almost as a scene of House of Cards. So that was literally quoted to me once. Uh, and I try to reassure them, no, 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 no don't don't, don't, be, uh, don't be don't be they't be, be silly. And they seem to think that this is just a bit of a, a dramatic play at hand, which as we've I've been discussing, it's been quite important. Uh, what's a way in order to have, what's a way in which NGOs can really learn that employing such uh, you know, as, as we call it as diplomacy and international development and political tact for advocacy, uh, that it can be of benefit and of use and worth? Um, employing to really get the job done?
1: Right. So first, I would say, you know, a lot, how you approach that question depends on your starting point. And at some level, your levels of optimism about the direction in which this conversation is going. I personally believe, I think Oxfam institutionally believes that we are facing a somewhat momentary crisis of unaccountability, where the growth of, authoritarian, nationalism, isolationism, populism, is separating governments from their citizens in ways that is profoundly unhealthy for sustainable development. That said, we believe, uh, in part because of our mission, and I personally believe that this is a blip in history, that we are moving towards greater citizen agency, greater consumer agency, greater distribution of power from unaccountable elites to those who want to govern their spaces by showing up as people. If, if we're right about that, then it takes your question in that context. And I am I believe that over time, um, NGOs are going to get more and more sophisticated about how to map the political will of national actors in context where they're working and incentivize the right kinds of political behaviors. Just a personal anecdote from my perspective, which definitely colors all my experiences, uh, in, in, and, and views in this space. Um, when I arrived in, in Afghanistan, we were at the beginning of something, maybe a naive, but certainly a grand experiment to see if we could strengthen a different kind of politics and political actor at a time when, and in a context where how good you were at using a gun and marshalling, uh, physical force, was the only criteria for leadership that Afghans had ever really valued, meaning warlords had ruled that environment. And then into that space, the, the, the global development community comes, uh, first by supporting Hamid Karzai, and then asking him to surround himself with development thinkers, so people who are politically savvy, but also uh, wanted to gain a political franchise who had never been in the Mujahideen, who had met most of them, uh, had never uh, gained the kind of credibility that is normal in Afghanistan. Where did you fight against which adversary? Um, then along comes Ashraf Ghani, uh, who I worked for. And and he think of this guy. He spent 20 years in Washington in the World Bank, and he comes back to Afghanistan and is trying to convince the Afghan public in uh, in what some people will dispute it, but mainly fair elections, that he is a better servant of their interests than all these warlords. Um, He is anything but a typical Afghan uh, political figure. And yet what the development community was trying to offer was, this is the guy who can help you harness the economic power of the international community that can clean up corruption and that can make your lives better through development. He may not have fought. He may not know one end of a gun from the other, but he's the political future you want. And actually, it worked in the elections that followed, because for once, the development community at that time invested in ways that had people believing, actually, this guy is the reason that those monies are actually getting out to my village. You had national solidarity Program getting hundreds of thousands of dollars to, well, actually tens of thousands to specific villages. 33,000 villages around the country. People were seeing the benefit. So what you had in that space was a technocratic politician who was supported by a whole development community that understood if you want a different kind of development, you need a different kind of politics. And for that, you need a different kind of politician. The problem we face, obviously, if you look today, is did it work? Did he prove himself a legitimate leader? Is Afghanistan better off for having tried a development experiment? I think most people would say it's not better off today. But the real question is, was that a bad mistake and a failure to understand how politics really work? It will always be led by people of violence first and development actors second. Or did we not do certain things well enough for us to understand what to do the next time the international community wants to help bring what was formerly a completely incapacitated and pariah state into the international community. I'm optimistic about that too, but it's a really difficult set of questions that obviously arise from that experience.
0: It's a difficult set of questions, but at the same time, just as we've been saying, I mean, it's such a new topic about employing diplomatic tech and diplomacy and international development that to really see the impact, it is going to take time. So. Uh, time will tell in regards to the impact that was employed and of course whatever it indicates will will help to guide for future attempts and and that actually takes this to the next question because you mentioned how we are now in this momentary crisis and of course there are these autocratic regimes that are coming up here and there like lilies of the field and it's it's been it's been very daunting for both the international development and international affairs community, particularly when it comes to trying to address human rights or sustainable development goals or anything that has this rights-based focus. Uh, dealing with this context, how, how different, how are the current dynamics different from when you first began? And at the same time, how are they the same? What has been the same pattern you've noticed? Both when in, in the past, when you've been working with Afghanistan, and 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 how are you noticing that it's despite the shift with the rise of popularism both in Europe and the United States, and now Brazil, um, how have you noticed that there is uh, there's definitely more challenges coming up, and at the same time
1: similarities? Yes, so um, I'd love to take you back to two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, coming back from Afghanistan from that experience, and I arrive in Washington. Um, and everybody is preparing for a change in the presidency. And there were three initiatives. Um, This was obviously just the the months and year preceding Obama's election. And and the development community in, in this country was asking, in my view, all the right questions. There were three initiatives going on at the time. Um, that basically were all saying the same thing, very related to the question you just asked. There was one that was the 3Ds uh, initiative, which was bringing development, diplomacy, and defense together so that a sophisticated foreign policy would understand you have to balance these three things if you want to incentivize uh, governments to behave effectively. Uh, the, the, the Brookings Institution was leading an effort uh Call security by other means, which was basically saying the same thing. Um, If you want U.S. national security, you can't just use and think about force. You have to use all the tools at our disposal. And so how do we do that? And they talked about using development more effectively. The HELP Commission, which was a congressionally run initiative, did exactly the same thing. So 10 years ago, everybody was asking the question, how do diplomacy, development, and our, our defense, our security apparatus, Work effectively to incentivize the right sets of actors um, to make the world more safe and more prosperous. That conversation has, in the large, in turn, in the lar- in the main, uh, is-, is no longer a live conversation in this moment. And much of that is to do with what's happened in American politics. Um, the, the the sense that our foreign policy was driven too much by uh, elitist globalist. Who are disconnected from the concerns of ordinary people yes. and wanted much more basic stuff done. And so Trump is able to basically, I mean, he tonight, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know when your recording is going out, but um, tonight, President Trump has asked for primetime space um, so that he can convey to the American people why he needs his border wall. And he's essentially going to stoke as much fear as possible. And his calculation and that of his people is that that is a politically positive thing to do, not just for his base, but for the swing voters who are going to determine whether uh, he gets a second term. Um, and that's a frightening thought. So our view of how the United States needs to show up in the world has changed so much since 10 years ago. I Again, I believe it's a blip. I believe in the end of the day, The relentless logic of having a more interconnected world in which rights are respected and institutions actually serve their people will win the day because in the end of the day, citizens are going to demand it. But we are in a pretty dark moment uh, for the argument that defense, diplomacy and development can usefully work together to help governments win. What does that mean? You have to be smart and thoughtful and maybe specific and transactional about where you get your wins so they survive this moment.
0: And that indeed, I mean, it, just listening to its I couldn't help my, my jaw just dropping. And I can only imagine the, the hurdles that will be coming, particularly when it comes to try to either for those who are trying to convince about the wall or those who try to convince actually on development issues with, with, the, with the current U.S. government. Um, that being said, if there's one thing that we can all agree on is that the fact that despite, the, despite whatever phase we find ourselves in, you know, the night doesn't last long, the sun does come up. And with that being said that's what brings us to consistently push for development and human dignity because we do believe ultimately irrespective of uh of, of the current dynamics they will prevail now yeah. that being said i want to talk a little bit about the, the 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 what i call the tools that are employed in regards to uh to, to speak of governments on diplomacy and international development and it's. Something that I always declare to everybody to the point of ad nauseum, and that's the importance of diplomatic and political tact. I always say it again, the diplomatic and political tact consistently. Uh yeah to the point where my team wants wants to blow their heads open because they can't take hearing it anymore. But that being said, how I wanted to ask from you, from your experience, clearly from working in Afghanistan, now working in the United States, and now working with uh with with in the current administration where where the the, uh, the America First uh, agenda is rendering it quite difficult to really push forward an agenda that leads the country to believe that it is part of a greater global society, particularly in this discussion about the wall, particularly in this discussion of the other that is consistently harked within the United States. Uh, that being said, what what is how important has you has utilizing diplomatic your know, proper diplomacy in this case been in this approach and and, and ha- how has it really not been important you know have you used a different approach instead because of the current dynamics
1: right um so i i like the word tact it's a powerful word um but it does need to be explored a little bit um and let me let me back into it a little bit by by saying i agree with you broadly that now more than ever sophistication around who you're engaging what their interests are what your agenda is and how to achieve it in these times is absolutely fundamental so tools that ngos are using in this in that regard are much more sophisticated what we call power mapping at oxfam understanding the players who they are what they gain and lose where their alliances are um, absolutely key the staffing that you have on the ground uh, their credibility their legitimacy their political uh, sophistication their relationships with local partners and their uh, institutional awareness skills absolutely critical How you measure and value success in these times, particularly as you're talking about politics uh, and building a different kind of political narrative or sometimes building a different kind of political power, how you measure that and convince others to support that endeavor is absolutely fundamental. But the the last uh, skill and tool, which is very much, I think, in line with what you're saying, is how do you balance your efforts to, to play and use the different tools as you incentivize or challenge powerful institutions to act differently? For For many NGOs, it's about playing an inside and outside game in ways that do not put them in conflict with each other. So we use terms like being a critical friend. What it means is that when you go out there and you challenge people in a way that might be deemed by some to be tactless, you do it in a way that the target of your advocacy understands your motivation and accepts that you bring credibility and sincerity to that effort, often because your evidence is solid. And a little rule of thumb that I I certainly use, you normally have allies within the institution that you're targeting who are very grateful for you having made that public case because it allows them to continue an internal conversation that moves the ball in your shared direction. What that means is so tact doesn't mean that it's always it often implies that it's behind the scenes um, and that it is non combative uh, and that it it doesn't make people uncomfortable. I'm not sure that would be my definition of tact and maybe I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid here. I think tact for me means political sophistication and never unintentionally alienating someone because you haven't asked yourself the question, how is this going to be received?
0: No, precisely. Actually that that would your definition would actually be far more accurate. Like and maybe perhaps this would be a lesson for me to uh when I engage with others because every time I mention it they seem to have episodes of House of Cards flying through their mind. It says, No, that's not <laughs> what I mean when I say tact. There's there's none of that nonsense happening. But Precisely that is that sophistication in regards to engaging, and I really appreciate how you said that critical friend, and that really sums up uh, the whole ethos of the diplomacy and in international development. At the end of the day, the role of the diplomat is to be that critical friend, the one that is trusted on both sides of of the field in order to really advocate the particular a Program or a case and whatnot, because you you must have trust. So the critical friend division I thought was absolutely brilliant, and and I would like to ask a final question as as we close up this episode is we we've, we've clearly discussed about the challenges that that is facing currently with international development, particularly in regards to using diplomacy to to push forward advocacy work, uh, whether in Afghanistan or whether the United States, but. Overall, we clearly believe that it, that it is important to employ diplomacy and international development. So, if the cases of of trying to fulfill the SDGs by 2030, by advocating human rights, whether it's women's rights or health or what so be it, why should NGOs need to employ diplomacy and international development now more than ever?
1: Yeah. So one last reflection on the sort of diplomacy and development nexus and at some level the tensions I, the, the the challenging part for ngos in this respect is to be clear-eyed about what the incentives of of diplomacy often are and to be persuasive with your diplomatic friends that and and to be sophisticated in your own diplomacy that, that the goals of diplomacy and the goals of development can be mutually reinforcing. If you take the SDGs, it, 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 this this conversation happens all the time in Washington, and it's often plays out in the institutional form of the State Department has one set of goals, and the development agencies like USAID or the Millennium Challenge Corporation have another, how do you reconcile them? The the the, the sort of simplistic, and it's not entirely on, on, on inaccurate, um, characterization of the tension is, when a diplomat wakes up in the morning, She is fundamentally focused on how to serve U.S., United States interests um, through uh, confronting the immediate challenge in front of her and getting an outcome that preserves the peace or advances the interests. It's a shorter-term perspective. It's crisis-driven. It's very high level. When a development actor steps into the space, they also want to further the national interest, but there are many more dots to connect, because their argument is a more prosperous, inclusive, tolerant, peaceful society in 20 years is going to serve, our 10 years, our five years, is going to serve not just American interests, but global interests. They are often arguing over what is the right allocation of, an Amer- of a resource or of a of use of our voice, and that short term be long term tension can cause folks to talk past each other and to find, oh, diplomacy is nothing other than instrumentalizing aid to achieve short-term narrow self-interest. In reality, effective diplomacy, and any effective dip- diplomat, which is why you know we talk about statespeople, um, is capable of achieving a, lo- a shorter-term goal, which can't be bracketed, but doing it in the context of what the longer-term national interest is. That's what defined the great statespeople um, in history. And on the development side, if you can understand that whatever your long-term larger goal is, you're not going to get there unless you have all the tools at your disposal and make immediate progress, then if you can get that, your head around that, you can build very effective bridges with the, the, the diplomatic community to make it a both end. And that, I think, perhaps in specific contexts, whether it's Afghanistan or Syria or Yemen or Rwanda, that is the challenge of this moment, how to show up with both of these non-security dimensions of foreign policy to achieve both short-term and long-term ends that are mutually reinforcing.
0: That's brilliant. Well, thank you very much for actually mentioning it in that sense. And it, I really appreciated how you've also mentioned when you were referring to the diplomat as a she, because many times people simply assume that the diplomat will just be male. So I really appreciate that that small nugget of uh, – of uh, empowerment right there but it's been a very very fruitful conversation with you i'm actually leaving this episode quite uh with lots of to think about because this has been a wonderful topic to not only spark the minds of our listeners and particularly those who are in working within ngos but also understand the importance that there is in employing diplomacy and the tact uh, but more in the more uh in the more gentle way, as, as you've indicated, uh, in regards to really push forward uh, both progress for our societies, but also bring a real change um, to the countries we're looking to serve. Uh, Paul O'Brien, thank you very much for joining the, the Global Podcast. It's been a pleasure having you.
1: Really enjoyed it. Thanks for asking and looking forward to continuing the conversation in other spaces.
0: That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtecumglobal.org. That's p a x t e c u m g l o b a l dot org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of Pax on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, Please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!